Lord, thank you for the wonderful privilege it is that we have the very words of our maker, the words of our saviour written to the page for us to, to read and to dwell on and to grow in. Lord, you have written them for our growth that we might become more like Jesus. Please, Lord, um, work sufficiently this morning uh, through an insufficient man like me. Uh, please build us up to be more like Christ. In Jesus' name we pray these things. Amen. <clears throat> who knows? Now, I was going to say, who knows anything of the story of Richard Wormbrand? But did you mention him in your message last week? Yeah. It's funny how naturally Richard Wormbrand comes up uh, when you're talk, speaking through First Peter. Um, did you guys get the email this week that I sent out? Uh, I, I put in a book recommendation in the email for the first time. Uh, it was Evangelism as Exiles by Elliot uh, Clark. And I'd, I'd, I'd give that a strong recommend. I'm growing in that, in my understanding both of First Peter and of how I'm to live as a person, uh, as a Christian now. Um, but it's funny, he actually... Uh, <laughs> I look like I'm plagiarising him this week, but I'm pretty sure he wrote his book after I first used this illustration. Um, <clears throat> but uh, he references exactly the same words from Richard Wormbrand that I do in my message today, talking about exactly the same thing. Richard Wormbrand didn't write a few words. He was a man of quite a few of them. He's written a few books. Um, and so it's, it seemed a funny thing to me that that should come up. But, but just so we're clear, who does know slash remember from last week who Richard Wormbrand is? Um, and would anybody like a refresher? Dad remembers, that's good. Yes, let's do the refresher. <clears throat> so he grew up as a staunch atheist, right? And, and Richard was converted in his younger adult years uh, and was a pastor in Romania when the communists came to power uh, in 1944 under Joseph Stalin. Uh, he spent over 13 years in various communist prisons for spreading the gospel uh, to Romanians, but also to Russian soldiers and even to communist spies, <laughs> the, the secret police. Uh, no one was outside of the range of someone who you could share the gospel with for Richard Wormbrand. It was great. Uh, he gives us a great example of what it looks like to suffer for doing good for the sake of grace. Um, and that reminds me, can I have the clicker thing? Who's got that? <coughs> Danke. I don't know how this works, so we're going to figure that out. All right. Cool. Um, so in his autobiography, he tells a story which... Um, which I'm plagiarising from him and which Elliot Clark plagiarised from me. Uh, I'm going to claim that. He's American, we've never met, he doesn't know who I am, but whatever. Uh, he writes this. It was strictly forbidden to preach to other prisoners. It was understood that whoever ca was caught doing this received a severe beating. A number of us decided we'd pay the price for the privilege of preaching, so we accepted their terms. It was a deal. We preached... And they beat us. We were preaching. We were happy preaching. They were happy beating us. Everyone was happy. The following scene happened more times than I can remember. A brother was preaching to the other prisoners when the guards suddenly burst in, surprising him halfway through a phrase. They hauled him down the corridor to their beating room. After what seemed like an endless beating, they brought him back, threw him bloody and bruised on the prison floor. Slowly, he picked his battered body up painfully straightened his clothing and said, now, brothers, where did I leave off when I was interrupted? <laughs> he continued his gospel message. I, and, and he finishes it by saying, I have seen beautiful things. 
I wonder, have you ever suffered for doing what's right? Christians, have you ever suffered for following God's way? I don't think any of us here today, I may be wrong about this, but I don't think I am, would have experienced anything like being imprisoned for living out our faith, uh, let alone being beaten for it. Uh, But the principle we're looking at today really applies to those uh, bullied at school, to those ostracised in the workplace, all the way to those who are imprisoned and even killed for their faith. We're moving through a section of 1 Peter at the moment uh, that started in verse 11 of chapter 2 that, that Dad brought, me the other, brought to us the other week, rather, where he is giving practical instruction to Christians on how they are to live in a world that isn't home. Particularly how they are to relate to people uh, who have not believed in Jesus. How they are to relate to people who have not believed in Jesus and, in fact, who are suspicious of Christians. Uh, and are even persecuting them and speaking against them for their faith. And that's something that we do run into as Christians in Australia, is a genuine suspicion of Christianity now. There was a time when Christianity may have been a favourable thing for you socially in Australia. It's not today anymore, generally speaking. We're moving... uh, Sorry, he he gave us the overarching principle for this back in uh, verse 12 of chapter 2. Uh, where he instructed Christians to live good lives so that those who speak against them now might one day glorify God when Jesus returns, or on, on the day of visitation, he writes. And although there's, there's a few ways, that, and valid ways, that you can draw that out that, that Dad brought to us the other way, I think the one that is most strongly in view is that so that some may come to believe and be saved and glorify God when he returns. And the reason for that is that everything in this section roots back in the glorious truth that we saw in the the first half of chapter 2. Jesus is the chosen cornerstone, and you uh, in him are chosen. You are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a people for his own possession. And then do you remember what purpose Peter gave to our choosing? What what it was for? Back in chapter 2, verse 9 that you might proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvellous light. In Jesus, we're chosen for hope in him and we live to call others to hope in him. This is the, the beautiful, weighty privilege of the Christian life. And so now Peter is working through a group of different areas of life where he applies that principle and he shows us how it looks. And today uh, we reach a passage where he starts with the workplace in view, but really lays out a principle that is broader than that, that works for the whole Christian life. And if you were to distill it down, Peter is saying today that it would be, uh, what he's saying today is that Christians are called to suffer for good and for grace. We are to suffer for doing good, for living in submission ultimately to God, And under that to authorities above us. And that is for the sake of grace. We suffer so that God's grace might be spread. Now I'm going to read bits of this as we go. It's worth saying I'm going from the ESV. We'll learn some of the differences in where the texts go there. But they they land pretty similarly. Peter opens uh, verse 18 with these words. Servants. I did prefer what the ENV said there. Slaves. I think that's a better translation. Slaves. Be subject to your masters with all respect, 
not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. So just like in the section that that Dad brought us the other week on submitting to government, Peter starts again with a call to submit. This time for slaves to submit to their masters. And just like in that section on government, this passage is not calling for a submission which involves uh, just doing everything that we're told. That's, that's, that's pretty obvious when you look at it. It's really clear because in verse 19 and 20, Peter anticipates that this kind of submission is going to lead to suffering, unjust suffering for doing good, meaning that the higher priority is to do good, not to follow instructions. Although we are called to submit, we submit in doing good. No master, you understand, no, no master would beat his slave for following the, the instructions that he gives him. That would be an odd thing to happen. But, on, but, but he would beat him for doing what is right, even if that was contrary to a command. For us, the general principle is really clear there, right? When you are called on by your employer to do the right thing, or by an authority above you to do the right thing, you do it wholeheartedly. You joyfully serve your employer. You show them what a good employee looks like. And you do the right thing when they call on you to do the wrong thing as well. And you carry those consequences regardless. But we should note, Peter intentionally chooses the lowest possible example of employment, right? Um, As we mentioned, that that word, servants, uh, more accurately, slaves, uh, it, it is the lowest example. And he does that so that we can catch something that extrapolates up into everything else. Um... Slavery in the day of Peter was, was really different to, to the, the slavery that we might think of from, say, the 18th century or even from the modern day where people are kidnapped out of their homes. They are placed into forced slave labour and, and, and the conditions that we imagine and the manacles and the things like that. It was a bit different to that, but it was still horrendous. Um, just a little side note. Did you know there's more slaves today than there were in the 19th century or 18th century, whichever one? That's... There's a fact to, to just think over. It's not, not relevant to our message, but it's worth knowing. Um, slaves could be better educated than their masters in Peter's day. That uh, they were often uh, there by choice uh, to pay off a debt. So it was a, a temporary fixed term enslavement. Uh, they could sometimes even own their own slaves in like a multi-tiered slave system. Something like that. Pyramid scheme. There we are. Um, However, it was still just a terrible thing. Slaves were the possessions of their masters, and as such, they lacked the rights that other humans had. Many suffered terribly. We might feel a bit more comfortable, mightn't we, if Peter opened this passage with words like, Slaves, you have the right to rise up against your masters. Slaves, free yourselves from your masters. Slaves, fight for your rights. But he doesn't. The Bible does in 1 Corinthians 7... um, instruct slaves to take the opportunity for freedom if they have it it's not a bad thing for them to take freedom but the reality is that peter writes to a minority group and his priority is not to see them demonstrate to the world uh, that they uh, they need justice his his priority is not that they would show the world that their rights need to be met but to see them live in a way that shows the world how much they have received mercy. And so just to place uh, this in the modern workplace, Peter isn't saying uh, 
uh, that it would be uh, sinful to stay in a difficult persecuted work situation or, or under a difficult persecuted authority. If you're suffering for doing right, I don't believe that Peter's saying, uh, well, you need to stay there. But he's not also saying you need to leave. Um, he's saying that we have a different priority in that situation. And so as Peter moves into verse 19, he now broadens out the principle uh, and shows us exactly what that priority is. He writes this, and, and this is from the ESV, and I think, I think this is a helpful translation here. It is a, a gracious thing when mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. Now here's, here's a thing that could be applied to any workplace or even more than that, to any area of life. It is a gracious thing when, mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. First, the, the action Peter is calling us to is enduring sorrows while suffering unjustly. Just to be clear, in verse 20, he specifies that he means suffering for doing good. But he further specifies what this means when he says that this suffering must be mindful of God. You know, Christians, uh, sometimes, sometimes we look at society like uh, it's a, a great and wonderful thing when su someone suffers unjustly and, and that, that's a beautiful example. But, but the Bible envisages it as only Christian, only good suffering unjustly when you're doing it mindful of God, when it is rooted in a genuine faith in the creator of the universe. Because suffering unjustly will be rooted in something, Right? Something will cause you to endure, and that something is what's going to get glory in that moment. And the Bible wants to see glory come to God. So Peter is calling us to more than enduring suffering just for upright behaviour. He's calling us to endurance which is enabled by a present faith in God. He wants us to remember who God is and what God has done. Because only then will we be able to suffer in a way that flows out of our faith. And so only then will we believe it. Only then will we show what we believe through our suffering. Perhaps the biggest and trickiest question, though, we get out of this passage is, what does Peter mean when he says that this is a gracious thing? Now, um, the NIV puts that it is, a comm it is commendable. Okay, I think that was it. Yeah. Um, but literally, the words underneath it are, it is grace in Greek. In verse 19, it is grace when mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. In verse 20, if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, it is grace in the sight of God. So what does that mean? In what sense is it grace to suffer unjustly? And I, think, I think the answer is actually that it is grace to you and grace through you. It's grace to you, and now, and now that might seem strange, but Peter is first, I think, saying that uh, when you suffer unjustly, you can be sure that you will receive grace. God will repay you for your suffering. He will be gracious to you. When Jesus returns, you will be rewarded for your faithful suffering. Uh, Peter will fill out this idea some more when we get to chapter 3, verse 9. And so I'm going to jump the gun on that a bit here and say, he says, Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless, for to this you are called that you may receive a blessing. There's a, there's a future grace in view. He wants us to have our eyes when we suffer now on the fact that we will receive something greater in the future. 
worth saying. Uh, we might think of that and go, well, that's not really grace. That's repaying me. That's giving me what I deserve. But that's not how the Bible presents our good works. Um, Paul tells us over in Ephesians chapter 2 that the good works that you do now are prepared beforehand for you by God. They themselves are an act of grace from God. And God will give us reward for what he has graciously led us in doing. It is difficult to overstate how generous our God is. But then it is also grace through you, and this is critical. Uh, As trusting in the future grace of God, you endure unjust suffering. It's not pointless. It's not meaningless in the here and now. It's an opportunity for the world around you to see uh, the grace of God at work in you. An opportunity for them to see how your faith is working out now, how faith in Jesus has changed you, and maybe to hear the gospel and receive God's grace as a result. Remember, Peter's purpose in this section is that the lives of Christians would reflect something of the character of God. And the truth of the gospel so that people might then hear the gospel and be saved. But do you see why it would be a way that the world would around you might receive grace for you to suffer unjustly? Do we see that? Uh, Enduring unjust suffering is not popular in this world. I'm not sure if you've noticed. Uh, So it it stands out as, as starkly different to the world around If you're being oppressed and persecuted, um, especially for doing the right thing, our world cheers you on if you fight back against that, if you rise up against your oppressors, or at the very least, if you curse the name of the people who are oppressing you, you know, or even maybe just for holding some sort of a moral victory over them in pride over your oppressors. Our world will clap you on for that, right? Think about pop culture, movies, right? How many movies do we see where the hero is suffering and oppressed? Lots. Like, you could think of a never-ending list of movies that that start in that category, right? Uh, So for for how many of them is the storyline that the hero continued on suffering and eventually died? Not many, right? None. That's not how it goes. They rise up. Right? Harry kills Voldemort. John McClane kills Carl. Luke kills, uh, blows up the Death Star. Simba defeats Scar. I'm just trying to catch a bunch of different genres here so we're on the same page. We could go on though. That's how stories work, but not this one. You see, in the, in the long sense, this is how it works. We do win. We do triumph. In the end, we receive grace and reward, as we've mentioned, and eternal joy. But we don't win by destroying our enemies. We win by graciously enduring the unjust suffering and maintaining our witness in the midst of it. In fact, if you throw your mind back to last week, uh, Peter called us to fear only God and honour everyone. That clarifies what this enduring looks like, doesn't it? It's not just uh, gritting your teeth and bearing it. Because we know that our God is gracious. And because we fear God alone, we honour those who persecute us. We pray for them. We love them. We are never to respond with hate or with anger or with gossip in the way that the world does. And that behaviour begs a question to the watching world. That behaviour causes people who have been hard to hearing the gospel message to see the depth to which Christians believe it. 
And that's an opportunity for grace. So you see, we show grace in suffering for doing good so that we might receive a gracious reward and so that others might know the grace of God. Now, it must be said, this excludes. We've said it a little bit, but I'm going to say it a bit stronger. This excludes the proud, reactionary, kind of bite-back Christianity that is actually pretty common today. Prime example would be the, the Westboro Baptists, right? Um, you heard of Westboro Baptist Church? They make the news every now and then. They picket things. That is literally all they do. Um, ah, they probably do other things, but that's all we, we know about them. Um, so they picket funerals and they scream hate at people uh, in the face of anyone who they perceive to be a sinner. They are, uh, I would say, pretty categorically a cult. But it's worth saying this is a broader temptation than just kind of the, the, the cultic yelling, yelling pickety people. How natural is it when someone speaks against you, especially if they are doing that unjustly, that we'd want to get angry, that we'd want to get into a slinging match, Often we even convince ourselves that that's the righteous thing to do, right? That, that I'm defending Jesus if I enter a heated argument with equal anger to my opponent. If you're on Facebook, you probably see this a fair bit. If you live in the real world and you're not on a computer all the time, you probably also see it a fair bit. We've just forgotten about the real world because we spend time on our phones. Uh, if I take to Facebook and, and I laugh in victory over liberals, right? Or to, to mock a secular society... Or if, when, if I rub it in that, uh, that Christians won a little uh, headland in the culture war, or if I bitterly uh, and sarcastically attack people because they seem to be winning the culture war in a progressive society. Sometimes we think of that as the right thing to do, and it is categorically not. Sometimes we think of that as defending Jesus. Let's be clear, that does not defend the name of Jesus. It taints it. If you even ever find yourself tempted to reply to a snide remark with a snide remark or to return hate for hate, then remember that whatever you do in that instant tells not just of you but of the one that you're following, of his character, of his way. Don Carson has said, and this is where I remember that I'm incredibly far behind in these slides, but uh, uh, he said, even if the whole society becomes uncivil in all discourse... We must not descend to that level. We must not project ourselves as screaming, angry people, but as broken people, living under the cross, submitting to the lordship of Christ, wanting to think fairly and accurately and faithfully and truly and hopefully and edifyingly in a Christ-honouring, church-building-up sort of way. I think this informs how we Christians approach our place in society as a whole, doesn't it? So often our response to society has been directed by what's fair, by what my rights are as a Christian. That's not all wrong. We are called to be a good influence on society. But what's fair for me, what I deserve, isn't meant to be my focus as a Christian. Or, to put it a little bit more accurately, I am supposed to live out of a great gratefulness for not having received what I deserve. We lose track of the reality here. We, we get stuck in the, the secular world's arguments and we, we, we lose track of the fact that there is a greater truth here. I have been freed from what I deserve and that is a good thing. It doesn't matter what laws are made against Christians. What rights are taken from us, we deserve worse. 
true fact. Likewise, we have received better than we could ever hope to win through, through a war in culture. We have received eternity with Christ. Do you believe it? Do you believe it in a way that changes how you interact with society, with politics, with opponents now? This is a challenge to me as much as it is to anyone. We live not out of a desire to see justice done for us. That is not our primary desire as Christians. Like Peter said in chapter 1, we trust that the good judge of the living and the dead will do justice. He's our father. That's taken care of. That's not ours to worry about. We live out of a desire to see grace go forth to those who don't deserve it. Because we've received grace when we didn't deserve it. And as we move on from verse 21 now, Peter explains that the grace of Jesus is our perfect example and motivation. Read this with me. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. Pop on pause for a sec there. Do you, do you follow his thinking? Peter's saying you're called to be a people who suffer because Christ suffered for you, setting the example. And so what comes next, uh, it, it would be really easy to read what comes next. And, and people jump to these next verses as, as a beautiful gospel message. And they are a beautiful gospel message. But they're not just a statement. They are a drawing us into a picture of what we are to be like. They demonstrate how we are to live. Read on. Verse 22. He committed no sin. Neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued, entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. You know, most of the language there, as Matt really hopefully pointed out for us at the start of the service by, by reading it, comes from Isaiah's prophetic message about Jesus, the suffering servant in Isaiah 53. So Peter's been calling Christians to endure suffering when they suffer for doing right, but now, uh, but not just in any old way, right? Now he holds up Jesus and he says, that, him, right there, this one, he is the way you're meant to endure suffering. He's your example. Here's your standard. He is the perfect example of this. He was perfect, sinless, and he suffered for it in ways that you will never attain to in this life. And I will, won't either. Let's, 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 let's be a group here. He was good. And in ways that you will never experience in this life, he suffered. He didn't sin. He didn't lie or trick anybody. Even though he was reviled, he didn't revile in return. Even though he suffered, he did not threaten those who made him suffer. And look at what he did do. He entrusted himself to the Father. He kept God in view. He trusted that God the Father would judge the earth justly. And so he did not need to respond with any threats or violence or hatred. But he trusted that God saw his situation and would be fair and just in the end. And look at the result that Peter points to. 
He says, he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. He didn't fight to destroy his enemies. He fought to save them. Or to be specific, to save us. He suffered so that we would be saved and transformed. You and me. The short way of saying that is that it was grace. He suffered so that there would be grace for us. Now, if you haven't known that grace, there is every chance of a person not having known that grace, then you can know it now. You can know the grace of Jesus who suffered for your sin and overcame it. But do you see how this isn't just a declaration of the gospel for salvation, right? This isn't just saying, oh, come to Jesus and be saved. What, what he's writing here, it, it's not just a declaration of gospel, but, but more clearly it's a declaration of the gospel in the way that the New Testament usually declares the gospel, but we often miss. It's a transformative declaration. Peter's holding Jesus up as the perfect example of everything that Peter calls us to do. Look back at verse 19 and compare it to what we've seen of Jesus. Jesus did good and suffered for it and endured suffering perfectly. That is the perfect example of when one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. Jesus was able to do it because he continued to trust in the one who judges justly. That is the perfect example of being mindful of God. Jesus did it all so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. So that we might be saved. That is the perfect example of what it means that it is grace. But Peter's not done with us there. Because he says one more thing. Uh, Starting from the end of verse 24, he gives this final statement. He starts it with a for. And that means that this is the reason. This is the because, right? He's given us how we are to endure suffering. We do it in the likeness of Christ fueled uh, by trust in God and driven by the desire to see others saved. But now he makes certain that we remember why we would do that. Why we would be motivated to do that. Peter writes, By his wounds you have been healed, for you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Peter's making sure that we catch the personal reality here. Jesus isn't just the perfect example of suffering. His suffering was for you. The perfect example of suffering is his suffering for us, for his people, for you and me, that achieved an immense change in you and me. Remember your state before you were saved. You were a wandering sheep. Do you know what happens to a wandering sheep? I think we do around here, right? Wandering sheep fall off cliffs. Not so much around Middleton. We don't have many cliffs. But uh, wandering sheep get eaten by wolves or dogs in Australia. Stray dogs. They end up a pile of bones. Did you know? I I think you would. We have a five and a half thousand kilometre fence across the middle of Australia because dingoes eat sheep and sheep are really bad at running away. A sheep is like a walking lasagna pack with tiny stumpy little legs to a dingo, right? Christians, we were wandering from God, destined for destruction, like the lasagna pack. 
But now we have been returned to the shepherd and overseer of our souls. He has brought us back to God. And he is watching over our very souls like the perfect shepherd that he is. We're not what we used to be. We are his sheep. And because we can trust him wholly, we can be secure in suffering now. Knowing that we will see, uh, he will see us through. And so the example of Jesus is also the power that makes us able to do good regardless of the circumstances, like our sinless saviour did. So we can trust in God's goodness enough to endure while suffering for doing good, like our saviour, who trusted that God would bring him to glory, even when he was reviled and scorned and mocked and beaten and had a crown of thorns pressed down into his head and was nailed to a cross and carried all of our sin. We can go through that suffering for the sake of those who make us suffer and for the sake of all who do not believe so that they might move from being dead in sin to living in righteousness because our Saviour suffered to save us. With his very wounds, we are healed. So do we see the fullness of the grace Peter is calling us to when we suffer for doing good? We show grace in suffering for good so that we might receive a gracious reward and so that others might know that saving grace. And we do it solely on the basis of the mighty grace that we've already received when we were healed and restored by the wounds of Jesus. Richard Wormbrand, let's go back to him. Mentioned him at the start. Uh, he tells this story about a young Christian woman in the Romanian church. Let me read it to you. One of our workers was a young woman of the underground church. The communist police discovered that she secretly spread gospels and taught children about Christ. They decided to arrest her. But to make the arrest more agonising and as painful as they could, they decided to delay her arrest a few weeks until the day she was to be married. On her wedding day, the woman was dressed as a bride, the most wonderful, joyous day in a girl's life. Suddenly, the door was pushed open and the secret police rushed in. When the bride saw the secret police, she held out her arms to be handcuffed. They roughly put the manacles on her wrists. She looked toward her beloved and she kissed the chains and said, I thank you my heavenly bridegroom for this jewel he's presented me with on my wedding day. I thank him that I am worthy to suffer for him. She was dragged off with weeping Christians and a weeping bridegroom left behind. They knew exactly what happens to a Christian girl, a young Christian girl in the hands of communist guards. And after five years, she was released. A destroyed, broken woman looking 30 years older. Her bridegroom had waited for her. She said it was the least she could do for her Christ. It's a remarkable witness to the suffering of Christ when a Christian suffers for him. It's a remarkable witness to that when he to, to what he has done in a Christian's life when they can suffer under unimaginable treatment for only doing good. 
It's a route for the gospel to go out. When a Christian reveals how much they believe God, how much they trust in God, the perfect judge and loving saviour, by being willing to suffer for doing good whilst trusting him. It's a miracle of God's grace when Christians can honour their enemies, pray for their persecutors, love their opponents. Do we think of the people who campaign against us, who hate us, locally and nationally and internationally? Do we think of them in terms of love? This is what we're called to because we were the enemies of God and he loved us. We're called to defend the name of those who don't deserve it and open our homes to those who would oppose us. You know, we may not experience torture in prison. Uh, we are unlikely at this point to face that in, uh, in our country. could happen in the future, but, but not at this point. But when we know the salvation that's been achieved in us, that we were wandering, lost, headed for destruction, but by the blood of Jesus we have been brought back to peace with God. Every time we face suffering for doing good ceases to be just a painful inconvenience, do you see? It might still hurt. In fact, it will still hurt. Let's be real. But it becomes a chance for the world to see the one that we follow and how he carried the pain. If you're mistreated in the workplace for your honesty or your lack of gossip or your incessant enthusiasm for this Jesus guy, the world would tell you the way to respond is to get justice to cause trouble for those who have troubled you. But if you don't uh, meet that expectation, then it becomes an opportunity for the world to see how true it is that you believe what you say that you believe. If your family, if your friends or your class put you on the outer because you don't go along with doing the wrong thing, but insist on good, advocating for the rights of those who others would not afford them to. Bringing in the person who no one else wants in your circle of friends. Speaking up for eternal truths in a world that only wants to think about here and now. That is an opportunity for the world to see that you have been so changed by your saviour that you will suffer for doing the good of loving others. Would you pray with me? Lord, you committed no sin. There was no deceit in your mouth. You did not revile and you did not threaten, though, Lord, you had the power to do both. A legion of angels, 12 legions of angels would have come down and delivered you from that cross if you'd but called. But instead you suffered for the sake of saving those who were lost, for the sake of those who threatened you, for the sake of those who reviled you, for the sake of us. 
Make us a people who are ready, Lord, to do good. Who will not back away from the declaration of your gospel. From the caring for the lost and for the needy. A people who stand for what's right and stand for the rights of those who do wrong. A people who care and love even when we have to endure more than those we are caring and loving uh, have to. Make us that people, Lord, and make us a people who joyfully share and witness, who give a testimony of your grace in the person of Jesus. We were wandering like sheep, Lord, but you have returned us to our shepherd. Thank you, Lord. Help us to live as your sheep, followers of our shepherd. In the name of Jesus, we pray.